Let me make this a little interactive real quick. If you're a deacon or a wife of a deacon, please stand. You don't have to be serving actively. You can be inactive. If you're a deacon or the wife of a deacon, please stand. If you've ever been ordained as a deacon, I know some of you have been and you haven't stood up yet. That's why I'm beating this to death. If, <clears throat> there you go. Everybody take a look around. You see the people standing awkwardly now? I didn't tell them this was going to happen. I expect to receive some anonymous letters. I don't read those. Okay, you can sit down. You see, the way that, that Paul writes it, the way we see in the New Testament, there is a division of labor, so to speak. We have the elders on one hand, and we have the deacons on the other. Okay? This isn't to say... Some are better than others. This isn't to say they're more important than others, but this is simply to say we've got elders, we've got deacons. Two categories, okay? Make sense? Not a stepping stone. You don't become an elder, you know, first rank, elder second rank, elder third rank, and then, you know, you get a demotion, you become a deacon. It, that's not how it works. They're, they're separate in function, but they're desperately necessary. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke on the subject of elders, and I said, you know, for a lot of Baptist churches, that is a dirty five-letter word. You hear elders, and you think, I can't believe he said that in, in, in the gathering. I can't believe he said that in our church. I'm going to go home and pray for him. But we hear the word deacon in, in our community, and it, it's laughable, right? I have a lot of minister friends that, that seem to spend an inordinate amount of time coming up with deacon jokes. Like, have you heard the one about the deacon? I'm like, well, probably, but and I really don't want to hear it again. It wasn't funny last time. You need some new material. But they spend a lot of their time coming up with, with deacon jokes. You know, you know, what does it take to get nothing done in the church? And they say, a church run by deacons. Whoa! What does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know, but I hope no deacons are present. What does it take? I mean, just, this, this, you guys have heard these? Oh, these aren't, okay. Had five or six more, but I'll stop. And so this idea that, that deacons have been a byword, they've been you know, laughed at, they've been made fun of, and, and largely it's because of what we have let deacons become. It makes sense. When you look at historically what deacons were, you'd be blown away, you'd be so proud, and everybody in this room would want to be a deacon. But then you look the last 50 years or so to, to those men that we have asked to serve as deacons, and you look at their private life, and you look at what they are when nobody's watching, and you'd be offended. You would, question, you would question their Christianity. You would question their walk with God. And you would begin to wonder how in the world someone ever thought to call this individual to be a deacon. You see, because at some point, the church decided what we really want, what would help us be the best if we found those who were succeeding in our community. And so they found business leaders. They said, man, so-and-so owns three or four businesses. He is the guy we want to be a deacon. He will come in. He'll streamline the process for us. He'll show us how to increase giving, increase service, motivate people. And best of all, he's loaded. So we've got to have him. He should probably be our chair of deacons because he's setting the bar at what it should be. Somebody else comes along and says, I know a guy who's a CPA. He is meticulous with detail. He is fantastic, beautiful family, large house. Again, big giver. And then this person would be a great treasurer because he's going to keep track of all the money. And so they start collecting this group of people. You know, it's like if you're putting together a kickball team as a little kid, you want somebody that runs fast, dodges well, and can kick the ball, 
right? When they started looking together at how to put together deacons, they started looking at things that just pragmatically made sense. You wanted somebody who excelled at business, had a decent name in the community, who was wealthy, smart, and somebody who you thought could fill a niche at your church. And you went out and you tried to recruit them. You went out and you tried to recruit them. So you end up with CEOs, you end up with people that are head of industry trying to direct, trying to orchestrate, and trying to rule in a church. You get them in there, and in five days a week, these guys spend their energy making decisions, firing people, hiring people, administering payroll, doing all of these things that they can do because that is their job. That's what they are trained and specially commissioned for to do, right? Whether they be doctors or lawyers or whatever, they're, they're good at what they do in the business world, and they import those same practices into the church, and what happens? Chaos breaks out. There's some type of argument that, that, that breaks out on how to do membership or, or how to do you know, remodels in the church or really how to do anything, how to handle a disagreement, how to do church discipline. And they say, look, one of my employees acts this way, this is what we do with them. And they've already departed from the Word of God. And say, look, let me tell you about an experience I had uh, when I was working with a business partner, and he did this, and they've already gone the wrong direction. You see, what, we're not, what we are looking for is men who are dedicated to serve God passionately with every fiber of their being. We're not concerned if you excel in business. We're not concerned that, that you are wealthy. In fact, over and over again, we see in Scripture that wealth is a hurdle, is an obstacle to serving God. It is difficult to serve your, your bank account and to serve God simultaneously, so we see that as an obstacle. The Bible offers us a radically different perspective on what a deacon is. The prototypes of deacons are, are written about for us in Acts chapter 6. This isn't a formal group of men as deacons, but it is from whence they come. It says in verse 6, it says now, or chapter 6, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, by the Greek women, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Man, they weren't getting as much as the others. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, Man, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They should deacon the tables. This is where this word comes from. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of what? Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. We see congregational support. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Neoncor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. And this is the word we see from Luke. He said, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What they see when they went out for men that were full of the Spirit, men who were given to wisdom, men who were, in, in a very real sense, made 
in the same heart mold of God. That God blessed their efforts, that God grew their assembly. And, and, and quickly, let's look at two of these. The most famous, arguably, is Stephen. Stephen, who this guy is, is kind of a prototype deacon, is set aside unto service. And what does he do? He goes out and he is performing, I mean, amazing things. Stephen, in verse 8, is full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is shorthand for he was working miracles. Sets a high bar for deacons. Got a lot of great men. I haven't seen any of you work a miracle. I'm just saying. Stephen is working miracles, and then he gives one of the most phenomenal sermons recorded in Scripture. In Acts chapter 7, he unfolds the process of revelation. He unfolds what God has done from the beginning of time for the Jewish people up through present. And he does that, and, and the Jewish leaders respond, and they take him out, they throw him outside the city, they roll him outside the city, and they stone him to death. And they stone him to death. See, one of the early martyrs reported in Scripture is a man who would serve. One of the early martyrs reported in Scripture is a man who would be deacon. And then Philip. Philip, in, in chapter 8, and verse 4, it says, Now these were scattered about when preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria to proclaim to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, and saw the signs they did. Unclean spirits came out, crying with a loud voice, out of the many who had them. And many who were paralyzed, were lame, were healed, so there was much joy in the city. See, on the one side, we see what, what, what being very practical, what being very full of the world would select for us. Men of industry, men of means, men that, that, that are doing well, on the other side, we see what matters. Men that are sold out to Jesus and ready to give all unto his service. Now as we turn to 1 Timothy, we see that Paul gives us, here in the second half of chapter 3, or second portion of chapter 3 rather, a description that is very similar to the same, same thing that he did for elders. In elders in 1 through 7, he gave qualifications for what it is to be an overseer, to be an elder. And so he ran down through and he was ticking through this list of what it is to be an elder. And here he does the same thing for deacons. Moves to the second officer of the church. Let me read them for us. He says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Turning to their wives, Paul writes, let their wives likewise be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded and faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul turns and he gives us a very similar list to the things that were said about elders. He starts off and he gives us, again, an umbrella term, where for elders, he said they must be beyond reproach. For deacons, he said they must be dignified. They must be 
dignified. A deacon must be somebody who, when their name is said in the community, much like the name of someone who would be elder, it does not immediately return with accusation. It doesn't return with this idea that, I can't believe that you had asked Steve Holly to be deacon. And, and, and when we say his name out loud, it just pains us, and we turn inward with a fiery passion and burn against Steve Holly because he's such an awful, awful, horrible, no good, dirty person. Sorry, Steve. You see, instead it should be like it is when we say Steve Holly's name. We think of him as being kind. We think of him as being gracious. We think of him as being dignified, a man worthy of respect. We think of these things when we think of, of the name of one who would be deacon. I said they must be dignified. They must not be double-tongued. All the deacons look down. They're thinking, please, please don't use my name as one who would be double-tongued. Man, it's very much this idea that, that deacons find them, found themselves in the first century and find themselves still today doing a lot of ministry home to home. And so they're, they're going on a bereavement visit. Some family has someone that's sick. Some family has someone that has passed away. They go into their house. They're offering condolences. They're speaking to them. They're sharing with them what Scripture thinks about loss, what Scripture says about what it is to go through trials and tribulations. And they're sharing these things with this family. If they're double-tongued, they share these things with this family and they go to the next house. And they get over here and they start talking to them, but all the grief and woe. I mean, you guys are in a much better place than those jokers over there because I'm pretty sure they're going to hell. Can't guarantee that, but that, that's the type of thing I get. And, and all they do is spend their time talking bad about that family or talking bad about the church or talking bad about the ministry done here. See, they're double-tongued, because when they were over here with this family, all they said, man, you guys are so great, you're so wonderful, God loves you so much, all these things are going well for you, and in their mind, all they're thinking is, I can't wait to get to the next family so I can unload. What a, what a bunch of really creepy people they are, but also what a bunch of really crazy people they are. This person who is double-tongued says one thing to one person and one to another, and what we realize is they are not sincere, they are not following God in anything that they say, and that is demonstrated by the way they live their lives. He turns again to the same thing that he had said of elders, and he says, not addicted to much wine. We find that it is important for men who would serve as deacon and men who would serve as elders not to be alcoholics for obvious reasons. Paul isn't saying here that they must abstain 100% from any alcohol, but he's saying don't be addicted to it. Don't be enslaved to it. Turning from that, he says, just like you shouldn't be enslaved to alcohol, don't be enslaved to money. You know, most of us who come here on Sunday and Sunday, and Sunday out aren't addicted to alcohol. But there are many who are addicted to money. And you give your lives to working as many hours as, as your body will handle. You give everything in you to the pursuit of an elusive goal. One more dollar. Paul talks about a man who would be deacon. And whereas the world would say we want to go after somebody that's already got a lot of money in their bank account, Paul says go after somebody that when you ask them how much money do you have, their response would be, you know, that's a curious question. I've never seen myself as one who would pursue wealth. 
I've never seen myself as a person who would spend my life and my energies making much of anything other than Jesus. And so when you ask me how much money I have, I just don't know. You see, we also see that a person who would be deacon, when it comes to matters of supporting the church, when it comes to matters of tithing, of giving an offering to the church, a person who is greedy for dishonest gain, man, this person knows exactly how much money they make. Because they get out the spreadsheet and they're going through and they're parsing out exactly how much it works and and somebody says, well, you need to give 10% off of your gross. And they're like, well, that's really an unfair. I kind of work off the net, minus deductions, uh, travel expenses. And so as it boils down to, I'm going to give a generous one half of, of, of uh, 1%. What they didn't understand in the first century is, is daddy's got bills to pay. What they didn't understand in the first century is this thing is much more complicated today. See, if you want to argue about 10% of, of all the money you make belongs to God you're already in the wrong place. If you want to argue about how this tithe thing works out and how money works out and exactly what percentage belongs to God and what percentage belongs to you and you get to keep, your heart's in the wrong place. Because I got news for you. It's all his. If he didn't give you breath to wake up in the morning, if he didn't keep your heart pounding, if he didn't cause the food that you eat to give you nourishment, you wouldn't make another dollar. You wouldn't make any more money. Absolutely every dime in your wallet, in your bank account, it's his. All the debt that you've stacked up on top of it, he takes that too. See, the deacon that is greedy for dishonest gain, his heart is so marred by the things of the world because he's given himself to a false picture of prosperity. You can't be prosperous in the world's eyes, in this greedy pursuit of money, and serve God at the same time. You just can't do it. Paul goes on, and he offers this beautiful thing, and this is the, the first positive thing. Or the first thing, he hasn't, he hasn't uh, given us a negative to advance it. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so the question becomes, what is the mystery of the faith? You see, as we look at this, we understand that the mystery of the faith is that thing which God has revealed to us. That thing that when you talk to your relatives who don't know Jesus, they're like, I just can't understand it. No, no, what did he do? And you're like, he died for your sins. He died for all those misdeeds. He died for all those lies that God loved you so much that he sent his son into the world to be a sacrifice for you. It's a mystery to them. They say, I'm sorry, can you... One more time, can you explain it to me? See, Paul's not talking and using the word mystery to talk about these things which are hidden to us, to those who know Jesus. But what he is talking about is those things that are hidden, those things which are mysterious for those who don't identify with Christ. And so a deacon is one who needs to hold on. They need to struggle. They need to, to hold in, 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 in this beautiful understanding of knowledge of what Jesus did for them. They need to be able to articulate the things of the faith. 
They're not called to teach, and that's the primary distinction between elders and deacons. But what they do need to be able to do is when someone approaches them, they need to be able to know the text. They need to be able to know God's Word so they might encourage, so they might challenge, and so that they might be salt and light. And as they hold the Word of God, as they hold this mystery, they need to do so with a clear conscience. A deacon is one who, when he lays his head down at night and he thinks through his day, the gospel that he holds and the life that he lives must not be in contradiction. A deacon is one who, when he enters the workplace, is one who the life that he lives, the way that he treats his employees, the way that he responds to all those around him, the way that he speaks to his family, must not be in contradiction to the faith that he holds must hold it with a clear conscience. I move through verse 10. It says, And let them be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Here at Ridgecrest, we, we issue a questionnaire, and we meet with these men who would be deacons. But prior to any of this happening, the church body is watching. The church body is observing. Now you see you Sunday in and Sunday out. How do you treat your spouse? How are you working in the pew? Are you singing along? Are you engaged in the things of the church? And they're testing you long before the pastor and the deacon officers do. And as they observe these things in your life, they put your name forward and we sit and we look and we think and we pray and we begin to run these qualifications over your name. You see, as a deacon is tested... And as they come back not being found uh, without these characteristics. As they are found to be men who are living lives that would be pleasing to God. Then we put them forward to be deacons. But we see a special instruction given to deacons that is not given to elders. As we turn to verse 11 we see that their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This is why I had the wives stand up with the deacons. This isn't, a, this isn't a word that says that deacons have to be married. This is simply a word that as they find themselves married, and you guys operate as a match set. As you go out and you're, and you're visiting homes, You'll spend a lot of your time praying over different families with your spouse. You might even find yourself visiting homes with your spouse. And your wife should be there, and she should be very much the same type of reflection that you are. She must be dignified. It's the same word used of deacons, that when we think about the deacon and we think about his wife, that it returns the same type of positive thought, that it returns the same type of positive behavior in their lives. They must be dignified. They must not be slanderers. This kind of goes back to this idea of being double-tongued. That unfortunately, I'm just going to say Hollywood portrays this this way. This isn't the way I think, but, but it seems to be they kind of struck on something or they'd leave it alone. Oftentimes, women are given to gossip. Hollywood says that. I, I've, I've watched some TV. That I've seen that. I've heard that. My mom told me it was true. It must be. And so it's this idea that, that whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, but he's focusing in on women. He says, don't be a slanderer. Don't say bad things about people. Don't take somebody's name and run it down. 
Man, if you have a genuine problem with somebody, go to them. If you're seeking someone out just to say something bad about someone else, stop. One, you sinned when you thought the thought about them. You're compounding that sin by spreading it to somebody else. If you have an issue with somebody, talk to them. Work it out with them. If you can't work it out with them, bring somebody else in. Don't slander. But be sober-minded. This is the same thing said of, said of overseers, said of elders. But be sober-minded. Don't, don't swing wildly from one thing to the next. And then just in case these things aren't difficult enough, Paul writes and says that deacons' wives must be faithful in all things. Just in case it's not difficult enough for them to maintain these things, Paul turns and says, okay, just in case I miss something, be faithful in everything. I mean, this is the type of thing that should leave you thinking, well, what about, oh, no, he said all things. What? Okay. But, yeah, I mean, it just kind of leaves you this idea that there's really nothing in you that can be disloyal, that can be unfaithful to God. You need to be faithful in all things. Returning, Paul writes back to the deacons. He says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. This is something I spent some time working through when we went through elders. I'm going to hit it real fast. If you're super curious and, and wonder where my thoughts are on that, go back. You listen to it. It's at minute like 22, 23, 24. I don't know. It's somewhere in there. The whole sermon was decent. You should go back and listen to it. <clears throat> He says they should be the husband of one wife. This is how I render this. It says one woman man. This is what it is. They should be solely devoted to their spouse. Their eye doesn't turn and look at other women. Their, their heart is not pushed towards pornography. There is only one woman for them, and it is one they're married to. Does that make sense? It's not a reference to divorce. It's not a reference to polygamy. It's not a reference to anything like that. It is a reference to fidelity and intensity of fidelity. All right, let's move on. It's, it was good stuff in the other one. You guys should go hear it. That's what I've been told. I'll write a short article. If you're still confused, we can meet at infinitum and talk about it. He says they should manage their children in their own households well. We need to see that, that deacons need to be found in ministry and administering their own lives. They need to be engaged with their own families. I mean, we could see how someone could disqualify themselves from being a deacon by never being at home, by never ministering to their family. Now, on the other hand, we could see how somebody could disqualify themselves from being a deacon but by being so busy working with their family that they don't have any time for the things of the church. You see, they're over here, oh, I'm ministering to my family. I've got this you know, family over here, I'm ministering to them. We're like, what about your church family? Well, you know, i got my family over here. Man, it is a difficult tension to maintain, and I submit to you that it is not an easy thing to do, to manage time with family, to manage time with your church family. But Christianity is not about being easy. It's about pursuing the difficult things of God and maintaining a difficult tension. And then Paul has this beautiful promise. He says, for those who serve well, verse 13, as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, for those who serve well as deacon, for those who, whose lives don't make deacon a byword, for those whose lives magnify God and direct others to Him through their service, 
You gain a good standing in the church. You see people look at you and, and they think this person is an example of a mature believer. You gain good standing. It's not a progression until you eventually get demoted to elder, but you are gaining a good standing for yourself. But this is the great promise. See, it's good that people recognize that you do good things. But this is the amazing thing. That in serving God well, it buttresses, it supports our understanding that our salvation is secure. And see, this isn't something that's that's solely held for deacons, but this is held for anyone who finds themselves engaged in service to the King. That as we serve Jesus... That as we expend our lives' energy, as we expend ourselves, our finances, and all that we are in the pursuit of serving Him, whether it's scrubbing floors or leading somebody to Jesus, when we do these things, we're assuring our salvation because we recognize that our lives are spent at the pleasure of Jesus, and that reminds us of His sacrifice that reminds us of the fact that we are His. And so when you think about service, when you think about what it is to be a deacon, we are reminded of the view that Jesus took towards deacons, that He took towards service in general. In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus says, But He called them, speaking of the disciples, and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus sets up this beautiful pattern of service. Jesus constantly referred to himself not as one who would rule, but one who would serve. If you don't think being a deacon is a high calling, then why, oh why, did Jesus go out of his way to say these things over and over again? Why, oh why, if this isn't indeed a high calling, did Jesus spend his life and his energy laboring and serving? And at the climax, right before his sacrifice, he washed the feet of the disciples. Recognize that in service we honor God, we, we receive the honor of God. In John 12, 26, John 12, 26, it says, If anybody serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the fa- Father will honor him. To be a deacon isn't to pursue the honoring of oneself. To be a deacon isn't to pursue recognition. But to be a deacon is to serve at the pleasure of God. To be a Christian is to serve at the pleasure of God. All of us are called to service. Some of us are recognized to be officers of service. Think about this. This is how God served us. He didn't come into the world to lord authority over us because he already had authority. But Jesus came into the world as a humble man. 
He didn't presume to lord authority over those that he encountered, but he laid down his life at the hands of his creation. He served us in offering himself for us to the glory of God. And the word he says to all is come, follow me, surrender your life, recognize the sacrifice that Christ has performed on your behalf that he freely offers. Proclaim him Lord and Savior and rightly believe that he died so that sins might be atoned for and he sits high and exalted, resurrected at the right hand of God as a servant. Let me pray for us.